Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. So the year was 1788, and the British Empire had just settled on the eastern coast of a large island that would eventually become its own nation, that would eventually become its own continent. That nation would become, come to be known as Australia. And as the British settled the east coast of Australia, they settled a colony that would later become known as the most influential and probably, possibly the most beautiful city in all of Australia, the city of Sydney. Now, as they settled it, though, one thing that they realized is that Sydney was built on a layer of sandstone and clay. And so in many, in many ways, the city of Sydney almost died before it even got started. Because although sandstone and clay is, a great, is great to build a city on, especially a harbor city like Sydney, it's really, really difficult to farm sandstone and clay. And so as a result, the early settlers of the colony of Sydney almost starved to death as they tried to get the city off the ground. In fact, within the first couple of years, the city almost went completely under. Because the, the, Sydney was completely dependent upon the resources that came from England, which were about 13,000 miles away at that point, a sailing trip that took over 100 days each way to accomplish. And so as a result, the early settlers almost starved to death. Until in 1791, a man by the name of James Roos started a farm northwest of the colony. He went to the governor at the time and asked for a land grant, and the governor allowed him to have this land grant that was basically just kind of scrubland and desert land outside of the city. And on that scrubland, he started a farm, a farm that he called the Experiment Farm that was going to help provide resources for the settlers in the colony. And of course, as the settlers found this out, every eye was on the experiment farm to see if this experiment would indeed work. After two successful growing seasons, they realized that this farm was actually sustainable. It was clear that the experiment had worked. And at that point, Roos renamed the farm the Model Farm. And it became a model for farming all throughout the areas of Australia outside the city, and as those farms grew up, it allowed the city of Sydney to become what it is today. And of course, the rest is history. Now, Michael Frost, who is an Australian theologian, tells that story of his homeland as a metaphor of who the church is supposed to be in this world. You know, in this world, many of us feel like we are just trying to survive. Someone like hacking our lives, hacking down into sandstone and clay, trying to get the resources that we can get out of this world just to survive from day to day. It's the church, though, who is made to be a model for the world, not only surviving, but flourishing. Even in a world that can feel like, at times, it's like growing a farm in the scrub bushes and the scrubland of Australia. It's the calling of the church to be a place, a community that displays the kingdom way of living as a true model for humanity. Now, when Jesus launched his kingdom into this world, he launched it as this model for fruitful living, a realm of flourishing, a place that he said where the birds would one day come and perch along its branches as he described what the kingdom was to be like. Jesus also said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, I've thought about this often. How do we become both of those things as a church? Both a place where, uh, where the kingdom is so evident here 
that the birds of the air, the birds of the world want to come and perch on its branches because it feels so much like home. That this place is such a loving and welcoming and caring place that the world, the birds of the air, would want to come and perch on its branches. And at the same time, be a place that is so faithful, so full of God's uh, spirit here, so full and committed to the truth of God that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. I'll tell you, that's a church that I've always wanted to be a part of. How about you? The good news is that that model, that design is a calling for any church and every church who wants to be that very thing. That's what this new series is going to be about as we kick it off today. We're starting into a series that we call The Flourishing Church. We're going to be looking at aspects of the book of Jeremiah, but we're going to be exploring these callings and really this model that is established for us that comes out of the book of Jeremiah of who God's people are supposed to be. What it looks like for God's kingdom people to be a model in the world that we live in even today. And I feel like, I really do believe this, is that this series has potential to change us as a church as much as any series has. If you were with us last week or you heard the message from last week, we talked a little bit about our vision for North Bible Church. We talked about where we've been, where we are, where we believe that we're going. And I made the statement that I believe that who we become over the next year or so will set the, mo- will set the mold for who we will be as North Bible Church for the next five to ten years or so. And I realize that because it seems like we have been given a new beginning here at North as we've naturally reset some things over the past couple of years, some trials that we've been through, of course. But that tri- those trials have pre- uh, prevented, or presented us, I should say, with a turning point. And a turning point of opportunity, a turning point of potential. And it's that kind of potential and opportunity that led me to choose this series for us for the next 12 weeks. Because one of the blessings that comes out of a time of trials, whether it's in our individual lives or, of course, it's in the church life, is that it has a tendency of focusing you on what is most important. You get to a place where you ask the questions like, what is this supposed to be about anyway? And so in the church, we ask the question, what is the church supposed to be about? Who are we supposed to be in the first place? What does it mean to be the church? When Jesus said, I will build my church, what did he have in mind for what the church is supposed to look like? And what's that to look like here at North? So I believe we're ready to answer that question as we get into the series today and over the next 12 weeks. We're going to be doing something a little bit different for this this series. The crux of our series is going to come out of one chapter in the Bible, and really one half of one chapter, in Jeremiah chapter 29. We're going to read that here in a little bit. We're going to be looking at the first part of that chapter, verses 1 through 14. And in those, in those 14 verses, we're going to identify, starting this morning, 12 different callings that come out of, those, of that powerful section of Scripture. And those 12 callings, are they going to form the messages for the next 12 weeks as we go through this series. We'll hit one of those callings each week for the next 12 weeks that come out of Jeremiah 29. Now, in actuality, we're going to be all over the Bible. We're going to be going all over the place with these callings and talking about different places in the Bible where we see those things and those themes picked up. But this is, going to be a, this is going to kind of be our tethering place. It's going to be our foundation for this entire series. So we're going to have a chance to look at that here this morning, and we're going to spend some extensive time today setting up our series as we introduce it. That's essentially what we're going to do with this message this morning. So let's start with a little bit about the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah was written by the prophet Jeremiah and one of his scribes, and it records the ministry of Jeremiah as a prophet who spoke in the Old Testament to Israel. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with Old Testament prophets, but 
Essentially, the job of an Old Testament prophet was to be a covenant enforcer. I was once told that in seminary, that the job of, a, of an Old Testament pro, uh, prophet is to be a covenant enforcer. And I always really liked that. Because essentially what their jobs were, were they were to go to Israel and to explain to Israel, okay, this is the covenant that you made with God. And then this is how you're not living up to your end of the covenant. This is how you can change and repent. And if you don't, this is what is going to happen if you don't. In other words, this is the judgment. This is the discipline that will come if you fail to change, if you fail to repent. Now, Jeremiah is one of those guys in a long line of Old Testament prophets whom God sent to Israel with this same kind of message. But I'd also say this. Among the prophets, though, Jeremiah was unique. He had a unique life and a unique ministry, which I think makes him so interesting to study. And I think makes this book really, really interesting as well. And here are a few things that made Jeremiah unique. First of all, Jeremiah grew up in the temple in the city of Jerusalem. So in Solomon's temple, he grew up really in that temple. He grew up as a priest serving the temple. And so you'll see in Jeremiah's message and his ministry quite often how, how much he has a love for the temple in particular, how, much of, uh, how important it is to his ministry. It really color, colors a lot of his message and his experience. Secondly, Jeremiah started as a priest and then a prophet during a time when God had already judged half of Israel. So dating back about 400 years at this point, Israel had been split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Jeremiah's in the southern kingdom. And about 100 years before the book of Jeremiah takes place, and Jeremiah's ministry takes place, the northern kingdom had been defeated and destroyed by the Assyrian army. Now, God sent prophets to both the northern and southern kingdoms. And as he sent prophets to the northern kingdom, he would tell the northern kingdom, look, you've broken my covenant, and unless you repent, I'm going to send Assyria to destroy you. Of course, they didn't repent, and what happened as a result is that the northern kingdom was destroyed. And so when Jeremiah is giving a similar message now in his books, in, in, his, in his ministry, basically telling the southern kingdom, God is saying again, if you don't repent, if you don't change, if you don't honor his covenant, he's going to send Babylon to destroy you. Jeremiah, at least, knows that God is not messing around. God's already done this to the northern kingdom. It could happen to the southern kingdom just like it did to them. So he knew that God wasn't messing around, and hoped that it would be a part of the wake-up call during his message. Unfortunately, it didn't work. Which leads us to the third unique aspect of Jeremiah's ministry. As he was a prophet to the southern kingdom, Jeremiah ministered during the time before the exile, during the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, in other words, when Babylon comes to destroy the city of Jerusalem, and then after the exile. He's one of the group of exiles that are dragged out of Israel back into Babylon afterwards. And so Jeremiah has this unique experience of first warning the people of Israel, right, the judgment's coming, and then experiencing that judgment himself as part of Israel, and then being dragged off as an exile, continuing to be God's present, or God's prophet in the midst of exile as well. And this entire time, he's been faithful as a priest, and then he's, been, he's faithful as a prophet, and yet he's having to endure the rejection of his message, the rejection of basically his standing within the community. I mean, at one point, Jeremiah becomes such a pariah in, the, in his own community that some of the religious leaders enact a plan to put him to death. But God protects him from that. And so at this point, Jeremiah, even in the midst of all that he goes through, still has this deep love for Israel. And he still has a deep love for these people who have turned their backs on him. 
And he's hoping as he gives his message over and over again that they will listen, that they'll finally repent, that they'll change so that this warning of of Babylon coming to judge won't actually take place. And on top of all this, he experiences this judgment and on top of all of it has to experience the conquering of Babylon firsthand as they destroy the nation through violence and really all the horrors that come through this one-sided war as Babylon conquers Israel. Now, Jeremiah is often known as the weeping prophet because he takes all of this experience to heart, right? In response to all that he's gone through, the rejection that he experiences, the destruction of Israel, the destruction of the temple, him being dragged off into exile, he writes a book called the Book of Lamentations. You'll find it right after the book of Jeremiah. And it's just a collection of all of Jeremiah's laments about the experience of all that he's gone through being rejected as God's prophet, the people not listening to him, the people not listening to God, the people turning their backs on God, the people then being conquered as a result of their discipline and their judgment from God, and then being dragged off into exile. And all this heartache is expressed in that book. And that's who Jeremiah was. So the book of Jeremiah itself, though, is 52 chapters long. And in the beginning of the book, God tells Jeremiah that in his ministry... His message will both tear down as well as build up. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 10, it actually says this. God says this to Jeremiah. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow, and to build and to plant. And so essentially what God says is that, Jeremiah, there's going to be this message of judgment that you deliver, but I'm also going to give you a message of hope. And you see that happen throughout the book of Jeremiah in different places. There is the message of judgment, In fact, the first 24 chapters of the book of Jeremiah are all about the judgment oracles of what's going to come, and that's kind of taking place before the siege happens, before Babylon attacks Israel. And then basically from chapters 25 on through 29, which we're going to be looking at today, is kind of the outflow or the result of uh, the, the conquering and the exile. But in these warnings, Jeremiah calls out Israel's worship of other gods as idolatry, He equates it to spiritual adultery. You've cheated on God with the other gods, is the way he presents it. You've broken God's covenant. And then he points out, as evidence of the fact that you've broken God's covenant, part of the things that you've done is that you've treated the most vulnerable people among you, the orphans, the widows, the immigrants who are among you, in a way that is unjust. And he points out the way that they have lived in breaking his covenant. So, Let's talk about our main focus, though, as we begin into this series, which is going to be from Jeremiah 29, which we'll read in a few minutes. And all this history that I just went through, let's put Jeremiah 29 in its proper context. Jeremiah 29 takes place right after the exile. So this is a time, again, Israel's been conquered, they've been dragged off into Babylon, and Jeremiah 29 falls into the place in the story where they have been resettled back in Babylon after being dragged out of their own homes out of their own country, watching their city burn to the ground. Now Babylon, who was the dominant world power at the time, was being ruled by the notorious king Nebuchadnezzar. And he attacked Israel in 587 BC and within two years had completely destroyed the city. He killed many residents of of Jerusalem and taken the survivors back to Babylon as exiles. And although we don't need to go over all the gritty details of what happens there, there are some important things to know. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar was a notoriously cruel ruler, and he hated Israel for taking sides with Babylon's big rival at the time, which was Egypt. Israel had decided to 
uh, to enact a covenant and agreement with Egypt and a partnership with Egypt. And so that made King Nebuchadnezzar mad. That basically put Israel on the map as somebody who was one of Babylon's enemies. And as a result then, when Nebuchadnezzar attacked Israel, he not only wanted to destroy them, but he wanted to make them suffer and he wanted to humiliate them. And so as he sweeps into the southern kingdom, they destroy all of the rural areas around Jerusalem, and then Nebuchadnezzar has his, has his army basically surround the city of Jerusalem. And for over a year, they make sure that nobody can come out and that nothing can get in. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar's goal is to starve the city of about 100,000 people who are inside the city walls. And he does this over a year or so, Thousands of people end up dying of starvation, and there are even historical accounts of some of the people in the city resorting to cannibalism to stay alive. That's how desperate and how bad it got. Now, once Nebuchadnezzar had starved the city, he sent his armies in to destroy the weak and depleted armies, killing anyone who put up resistance and ending up taking about 20,000 exiles with him back to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar stole all the treasure out of Solomon's temple, and then he burned the city, including the temple, to the ground. And then as the exiles were marched back into Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar humiliated them even further by stripping them completely naked and binding them together as they walked into the kingdom. Now, since so much of what happens in Jeremiah 29 is all about understanding the mindset of the exiles as, as they're in that place, I want you to imagine for a minute what it might have been like to be a part of that group of exiles. You've just been through an unimaginable time of suffering, starving and watching your neighbors, in some cases literally starve to death, and you've lost, you've lost your home, maybe you've lost friends and family members as a result, and now you're being taken to a strange place that you've never been to before, and you'll be forced to live under the rule of a king who has just starved your people starved your neighbors, and burnt your city to the ground. On top of that, you're being forced to march through your new home naked and bound. And you have no idea whether or not this is going to be the end of it. I mean, is Nebuchadnezzar just marching us into the city as trophies so that he can kill us at the end of this? What exactly is he going to do with us? At the very least, you're scared, you're tired, you're angry, and you're humiliated. Additionally, you're not even sure if God is going to do anything about it all. Because if you've been listening to a little bit or any part of Jeremiah's message, you know that God appointed Babylon as judgment on what had been happening in Israel beforehand, that they had broken the covenant. And as a part of this, what's even more shocking and fear-inducing at this time is that God's presence has left the temple is that for the first time in Israel's history, God's presence is not with them on the earth. Going all the way back to Egypt, God was with Israel from the beginning in the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. He was with Israel in the tabernacle, and he was with Israel in the temple. And as, God, as the temple's burned to the ground and God's presence leaves the temple, this is the first time that Israel is without a temple, and once they've settled in the land, the first time that they're completely out of the land. And it's hard to overstate how important this all is because the temple and the land in, in the Jewish understanding had everything to do with who they were. They rightly recognized that the one place where God dwelt with humanity on the earth was in Solomon's temple in the city of Jerusalem. They were stewards of the very presence of God among them. And the land itself represented God's promises, God's connection, God's provision for Israel. 
And so without the temple and without the land, they don't have God's presence, they don't have God's promises, and they don't have God's provision with them. The only thing they've got still is a prophet, and a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. And in this case, Jeremiah is with the exiles. And maybe for the first time in his ministry, he has an audience that's actually willing to listen to the words that he's speaking to them. Because as everything's been stripped away, as everything around the exiles have been stripped away, all they've got left is what God says about it. Now Jeremiah, before the exiles had been dragged off into exile into Babylon, before Jerusalem had been destroyed, had prophesied and said that Babylon will come and destroy Israel and that, that, that Nebuchadnezzar will take exiles back to Babylon and they will be there for 70 years. Most people probably didn't hear him say that, and so as they settle again in the land, God repeats that message through Jeremiah again. He says, go tell the people they're going to be here for 70 years, and this time, I want you to actually put on the yoke of an oxen and walk around as you proclaim that message. And so, yoke of an oxen would look something like this. Jeremiah would, look, would have looked something like that. Walking around preaching this message, that just like I'm bound in this thing, Nebuchadnezzar will bind you for 70 years in exile. Now, in Jeremiah chapter 28, we see this guy by the name of Hananiah come, uh, kind of arise among the Israelites. And he's a self-proclaimed prophet, and he says, God has told me that we're not going to be here for 70 years. God told me that we're only going to be here for two years. In other words, this will just be a long vacation, long kind of unpleasant vacation in Babylon, and we'll be back home before you know it. And he actually walks up to Jeremiah as Jeremiah has that kind of oxen uh, yoke on, and he takes that off of Jeremiah's neck and breaks it in half as a representation of the fact that God is going to deliver us back to Israel within two years. God, in the same chapter, in chapter 28, which is a chapter right before the one we're going to be looking at today, says to Jeremiah, I never told Hananiah that at all. In fact, he's a false prophet. I want you to reiterate to the people that they will, be in, they will be in exile for 70 years. That chapter ends with Hananiah dying mysteriously. <laughs> really what we realize is that God put him to death as a false prophet so that he wouldn't, he wouldn't deceive the exiles anymore. Now, as we get back to this place in Jeremiah 29, then this is where that picks up. After all that has gone down. And look, we may realize this as we read through this, and this is a connection that we're going to make throughout this series, but the setting of the Israelite exiles in Babylon very closely parallels in a lot of ways our setting as Christians in the world. In fact, we're often referred to as the New Testament, by the New Testament writers as exiles in the world, and part of their understanding of what an exile was is what is happening in places like the book of Jeremiah, the great exile that happens in Babylon. And we are called to live in a foreign land that is not our home, and yet to be people who represent Jesus to our neighbors in our Babylon today. And what we'll see is that these specific callings that are present in Jeremiah's letter still exist for us today in kind of its own forms as the church. And that's the outline for our series that we're going to explore throughout the next 12 weeks. What are these callings as people who are in exile, people called to represent Jesus in the land that we live, what do these callings look like for us as the church? How does the exile callings that we see in a place like Jeremiah 29 model faithful living as the church on mission in our own Babylon? So that being said, let's take a look at Jeremiah chapter 29. And in verse 1, it says this. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet, 
sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people, whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and his queen mother, and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisha, the son of Shaphan, and, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And it said this, verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives from your, for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will revisit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So this is the text, basically, of a letter that was written by Jeremiah, the words of God, given to the leaders of Israel while they're in exile. And this whole letter tells us at least a couple of things. First of all, what it says is that you are going to be in exile for a while. No matter what Hananiah said about two years, and if there's any other prophets who come to you and say, hey, it's only going to be 10 years and we'll be back, the reality is you are going to be here for 70 years. We'll say it for a third time. And that would have hit uh, the exiles in a certain way. Because the reality is for most of the people who are there, that means that they'll never go back home. Seventy years means that they're going to spend the rest of their lives likely in exile in Babylon. But God then says, secondly, now that you know that, despite the fact that you were in exile and not at home, I'm calling you to continue to live as you normally would. Listen to the way that he goes through kind of just the way of the normal things that they should be doing. Verse 5, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. Because what God knows is that their normal inclination is going to be to pull back. We're in exile. We're in a foreign land. Let's, let's pull back as much as we can, and, and, and this is, certainly isn't the place that we're used to growing up in and raising children in. So maybe we shouldn't have kids. Maybe we shouldn't try to raise children in this really harsh environment under this king who has oppressed us, who's destroyed our city, who's burnt our temple down, this pagan king who hates us. Maybe we shouldn't bring kids into this situation, and God says just the opposite. Multiply. Increase. Do not decrease. Instead, be people who put down houses, establish households, plant gardens, work for the city that you are living in. And of course, the one thing that he says to them, work for the welfare. Seek the welfare of the city that I have placed you in. 
Now again, get into the mindset of an exile in Babylon at that ca- in that case. The last thing you want to do is probably seek the welfare of the people who have captured you and dragged you out of your homes, starved you to death, and burned down your city. And yet this is what God says. Bless your enemies in the midst of the land that I have taken you to. And then, as a result, there are 12 callings that come out of this. Now, I'm going to go through the list of these 12 callings. These are the ones that we're going to explore through this series. And so um, I'm, going to give you the, I'm going to give you kind of the titles of each one of these, and these will be the titles of our messages over the next 12 weeks as well. We're going to explore these things in order. If we put the slide up there, the first one is the church who knows its story. That comes out of verse 4. The second is the church who is sent. The third is the church who walks in God's ways, which comes out of verse 5. The fourth, the church who represents God to the world in verse 6. Then the church who is a blessing to the nations, verse 7. The church who bears witness comes out of verses 7 and 8. The church who tells the truth comes out of verse 8. The church who lives by faith in verse 10. The church who knows the living God, verse 11. The church who proclaims the gospel, verse 12. The church who prays and worships, also verse 12. And finally, the church who is redeemed for redemptive living in verse 14. So again, we're going to look at each one of those over the next 12 weeks and what those callings mean, what they meant not only for Israel at the time in exile, but what they mean for us kind of in our new exile in the land of Babylon as well. But with the time that we have left, I want to focus on one key verse in this chapter. And I think it's the key verse that everything else kind of turns on. It's in verse 7. We talked about it briefly already, but verse 7 says this again. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now we need to start, understand what God's saying here. We need to start with that word welfare. You see it show up three different times in this short verse, so it's obviously a really important Uh, a really important concept to what God is trying to get us to understand in this. In fact, as you read it, one thing you see is that it's the calling, but it's also the result of the calling. Seek the welfare of the city is the calling, and then you will find your welfare is the result of it all, right? And so there's a calling as well as a result that happens just within that verse, and it's all kind of centered on this idea of welfare. So what does that word welfare mean? Well, The word welfare not only is hugely important to verse 7 and to this entire chapter, it comes from a word that is one of the most important Hebrew words in all of biblical theology. It's a word we've talked a lot about in here. In fact, I think a few weeks ago I even did a good part of a message on understanding this word. But that word is the Hebrew word shalom. And shalom is such a rich word that there's really not one modern-day English word that can fully capture the idea of what shalom is all about. That's why if you look at different modern English translations, you'll see that word translated differently. It's translated welfare which in the ESV, which is the version we use today. Uh, it's translated in some places peace or prosperity. In different ways it's translated, in different uh, translations it's translated in different ways. In reality, the full meaning of the word shalom is wholeness in a cosmic sense for all creation for all time. What I love about the word shalom is that it invites you to dream and imagine what shalom actually might look like. It encourages a big imagination about, as it describes everything in creation in perfect wholeness in a way that God designed it to be and in a way that completely pleases and glorifies him. Now think about what that might be for a second. Shalom. This is welfare. This is peace, prosperity, and all of it together. 
Now, of course, words like welfare and prosperity and peace kind of have their own hang-ups and their own limitations by the way that we use them in modern-day language. And so with this in mind, we're going to use in this series the word flourish. And what I like about the word flourish is that it's both a noun and a verb. It describes, basically, um, the aspect of life and, 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 and living and kind of health and all that, but then it also implies growth. It implies that health and life reproduces itself in a way that grows outward as it flourishes and as it continues to grow. So reproduction is a part of this. Life that boils over and spills out into, out of the church and into a community, for example, is what this looks like. This is flourishing. And, 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 and when God gives originally the garden to Adam and Eve, that's, it's a place of flourishing that is everywhere. And he tells them to be fruitful and multiply in a marriage relationship and then in a relationship under God in which they are completely flourishing in every aspect of creation. And that's flourishing, and that's how God designed it to be, to bless us and to honor God with how he causes us to flourish. And a healthy church that is alive will reproduce so that it causes flourishing not only among us as the church, but out into the community, outside in the streets as well. And because God created us to flourish this way, going all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden, he also created us with the desires for this kind of flourishing. So all the things that relate to human desires and all the things that we want to see happen in our lives and all the things that we long for spiritually and emotionally and physically, all of those things are all about God creating a desire in us to experience flourishing as he designed it from the beginning. And as we look at the biblical story, we see there's flourishing in the beginning and there's flourishing in the end. And we're in this whole middle part where it's kind of all broken. Right? Where there's not full flourishing, there's pieces of it here and there, but at the same time it's twisted and it's broken often in cases. And so what we see is that the brokenness of sin twists our desires and breaks the methods of meeting those desires. You see, it's not desire in and of itself that the Bible speaks out against. It's twisted desires, desires that God gave us that have become twisted because of sin and brokenness. So we have a good desire, for example, to know our Creator God. But because of sin and brokenness, it gets twisted so that we end up worshiping the things of creation rather than the Creator. We have a good desire for love and intimacy. And that desire gets twisted by sin and brokenness into things like sexual immorality of all different kinds. We have a good desire to know who we are and have meaningful identity and to know what our purpose is in this world. And that becomes twisted because of sin and brokenness in defining our identity in things like money or power or sex. We have a good desire to experience pleasure, but that becomes twisted into addiction, into things like drugs and pornography. Our des- we have a good desire to be safe and secure, and yet that becomes twisted in some ways so that it becomes twisted in a way that we have a, have a tendency to control others and to exploit others for our own security and our own well-being. We have a good desire for truth, but because of sin and brokenness, it gets twisted and leads us to embracing all kinds of lies of the culture around us. And so on and so on it goes. We can make a list a mile long of all the different ways that we have a good desire that's been twisted by sin and brokenness. The problem is not desire. The problem is that in the end, sin twists our desires into a way that can't fully satisfy us. As C.S. Lewis once said, famous quote from his book, The Weight of Glory, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, so it says, look, this is what God wants to give us, indescribable joy that fulfills us, that gives us true contentment to the desires that he's put into our hearts. He wants to cause us to flourish. And yet we take this beach vacation at the sea in a five-star resort, and we decide, nah, we'd rather spend our time chasing after drink and ambition and sex. And as a result, we end up playing with mud pies in a slum rather than embracing the life that God has called us to live. Instead of flourishing, we fall apart. So from this understanding of flourishing, then, let's revisit Jeremiah 27, or 29, verse 7 again. And I'm actually going to substitute the word flourishing in place of welfare so that it reads this way. If we can put that up there. I don't know if that's up there. Do we have that in there? There we go. Seek the flourishing of the city in which I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its flourishing, you will find your flourishing. Now, I want to ask you a question as we think about that and we close here this morning. What would, that look, what would flourishing for our city look like? The flourishing of the city where I have sent you. What would flourishing as the church, what would that look like in our city? What would that look like, and I literally mean that, in the city of Scottsdale, in the city of Phoenix, in the city of Tempe, in the city of Fountain Hills, wherever it may be. What would that look like in our city? And that's the question that we're going to wrestle with throughout this series. I mentioned earlier that a big part of Jeremiah's message is not just a message of judgment, but a message of hope. In particular, in Jeremiah chapters 30 through 33, we see that message of hope caps, uh, captured there. And in Jeremiah 31, 33, for example, God says that there will, there, there will come a people who have my law written on their hearts, and I will put my spirit within them, and they will be the people who represent my kingdom in the world. Hebrews 8 makes it clear that it's the New Testament church that God had in mind when he said this. The ones who the Holy Spirit indwells. The, one who, uh, the ones whom the law of God is no longer written on tablets and kept in a temple building, but that the law of God is actually written on their hearts and the presence of God dwells within them so that they are actually called temples of the Holy Spirit according to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We are living, breathing temples of God's presence in the world as we are exiles in this world. Now, we'll continue this story next week as we talk about the church uh, as people who know our story, especially in terms of what it means to be both exiles and priests at the same time, which all of us are if we are in Christ. We are both exiles and priests at the same time. We are priests who are in exile, if you will, and we'll talk about what that means next week. For now, I just want to finish with, with thinking about a vision of a church who flourishes. What would it look like for our church to flourish? What would it look like for our community to flourish? What comes to mind when you think about those questions? And here's our response for today. I want you to define flourishing in your own life. If you were to describe what that looks like in your own personal life, what does flourishing look like in your life? And as you kind of move out from center, what does flourishing look like in your relationships? What, is it, what would it look like in this church? Last week I started out by asking the question, if you could have the church be whatever you want it to be, what would it look like and why would it be that way? That's kind of another, question of, another way of asking the question, what would flourishing look like in a church 
that you wanted to be a part of. Living alive, but also reproducing and growing life as a result of its health. And then finally, what would flourishing look like in our city? And I've got one quick homework assignment for you. We're back into school now, and so it's time for a homework assignment. I'll give you one quick homework assignment. Find a picture that represents flourishing in your life. So think about this. Over the past you know, few months or so, a recent picture, maybe it was when you were on vacation with your family, Maybe it was when you were meeting with your community group. Maybe we had several people go on mission trips over the past year. Maybe it's a picture of being on a mission trip, whatever it may be. But an area, whether it's in your own life or in the lives of someone else or or somewhere in the world, where you have been a part of flourishing. And you have to either be in the picture or have taken the picture. Don't just like pull a stock photo off a website and be like, hey, this is a happy couple. They look like they're flourishing. Find Find something that means something to you, right, and that you've been a part of. And what we'd like you to do is to post that to your social media account, if you have a social media account. And if you could tag North Bible Church in that, if you're on Facebook or Instagram in particular, tag our profile, our account in that, and then hashtag it with North Flourishes. Now, if you don't have a social media account or you don't want to post this on your social media, um, email us a picture to info at northbible.com and we'll put it on our social media account. Just know that if you send us a picture, we're going to put it on our social media account, okay? Just know that ahead of time. But if you don't want to post it online or you don't have a social media account, that's an alternative. You can email us at info at northbible.com. And send us a picture, and even when you post it, if you put a little blurb on there that says, this is how I saw the flourishing of God in this situation, in this scene. And again, it might just be a vacation with your family, right? We saw how God drew us together as a family, or God caused our marriage to flourish in this way, whatever it may be. And what we want this to be is an opportunity for us to recognize and to celebrate the way that God causes flourishing to happen among us. And as a process of that, get a better vision of what it looks like for the church to flourish so that the world can flourish as a result of our witness and our mission. Okay. Take me up on that? Yeah? You guys thinking of that picture that you got in mind? Okay. We want to see it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness towards us, and we know that in so many ways, um, life can feel like we're digging through layers of sandstone and clay, trying to plant things that don't grow, that the sun just comes along and withers. And Lord, we ask that you would allow us, and you would give us the faith to see what you see in your church. That we would gain a vision of what Jesus talked about the kingdom would be like. That it would be like a tree where its branches spread out so far that the birds of the air, the birds of the world would come and take shelter in it. In the midst of the heat, in the midst of a world that beats people down, in the midst of a world that is broken and full of sin. That the kingdom of God would present such a model of flourishing and life that there would be an attraction to that. And Lord, that we would truly be a church in which the gates of hell cannot prevail against us. Because we are so faithful to you, Lord, because we have been people who are so filled with your spirit, because we are people who are committed to your truth. And Father, to hold those two things in balance and to be people who display both in the world is the idea and the vision of your kingdom and your church. 
And so, Lord, we know that often when you change us and when you lead us, it's a process and it can take a long time. But, Lord, we, here we are this morning saying we are willing. Spirit, change us and lead us. And, Lord, would you flourish us in such a way that we would be overwhelmed, that it would surpass even our imagination in this place. And that as a result, that this community, these neighborhoods, these, the cities around us would be changed because of what you've done at North Bible Church and the churches that surround us in this area. Lord, would you flourish us by your spirit and your salvation. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In just a moment, We'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Great to see you all here this morning. Thanks again for coming. Thanks for being a part of North this morning. Uh, talking about bloom, I didn't even realize it, but I realized it earlier when I got here, is that my shirt has little flowers on it that are in bloom, and so I didn't even plan that, but hey. <laughs> if it's going to happen, it's great that it happened this morning. So uh, allow that to be a reminder to you. The kingdom is in bloom all around you. See how God wants to call you to flourish. Uh, as we're leaving here this morning, I want to invite you, if you need prayer, I want to invite you to the Comstocks or our prayer partners as we leave here this morning. So if you'd like to pray uh, with the Comstocks, they're ready to pray with you. Also, if you have prayer requests, we have prayer request cards that are located at the table as you leave here this morning. On that table with the cross on it, you'll find a card there. If you fill out those prayer request cards, drop it in the offering stand as you leave, those black offering stands. We'll make sure that they get to the right people so that we can pray with you over this coming week. And we pray over those as a staff every week, as an elder team, and as a prayer team. So you're triple covered on that. Um, so if you have something that's weighing on your mind, we want to partner with you in prayer. Great to see all of you. Enjoy your afternoon. We look forward to seeing you again next week as we continue our series. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.